Father, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see what Jesus see this, uh, this day. That, Father, we'd be equipped to love and serve the Lord in the power of the Spirit and to the glory of your name and all the world. Amen. Last Wednesday afternoon, I was at the optometrist uh, for a checkup. Uh, nothing I have to report back. It was just uh, normal. Every few years, you get your eyes done. And he looked at my eyes and basically said everything was it should be for someone my age, whatever that means. Uh, it was surprised my wife, actually, because she was convinced my eyesight's not good because I keep... She says, you never seem to see things that need to be picked up. But anyway, that's another point. But she, so she was surprised. Uh, you love going to the optometrist because they go through all the tests and they do a little adjustments now. They say, what do you see now? You remember that whole thing? Is it a bit further away or closer? And you're going through the whole thing and a changing perspective ever so slightly to get a slightly different view. Uh, I actually got my very first pair of glasses to see distance back when I was about 26. And I remember being tested by the optometrist and he disconcertingly asked me at the conclusion of the test, are you driving currently? <laughs> and I didn't really understand why he asked that question until I got my glasses. Then I realised, hmm, I think I should have had glasses much earlier. I had appreciation for his concern. Now, I'm not an optometrist, but I'm a preacher. But I want to uh, ask the same question. What do you see? Not generally, you know, I know your eyesight and some people have good eyesight. And that, but what do you see when you look around this area? What actually comes to mind as you observe? Let's start with Oran Park. Drive around this new burgeoning suburb. What do you see before your eyes? Then if you go further afield and all the sort of developments occurring in this greater area and the, you know, the numbers over the next 15, 20 years, another 250,000 people are going to move in. Uh, what do you see? And what do you see when you go down to Oran Park shops or you go to the new Norellan shops or MacArthur Square? What are you seeing with your eyes? Now, at one level, the answer is obvious. You're seeing, as I've suggested, expansion, uh, lots of new buildings, new people everywhere, roads are getting more crowded, Norellan Road is getting more like a car park than a road, um, shopping centres are getting more crowded, there's more shopping centres, there's lots of people, that's what you see. But this morning I want to just do that slight recalibration and see if you can look at it from a different perspective. And this time the perspective I want you to look around is the perspective that Jesus gives. And we want to turn to Luke chapter 10. <coughs> I'm, I'm going to have to cough occasionally. I'm come off, coming off a bad cold the last few days, but I'll get there. Uh, use the perspective of Jesus seeing as it's better at Luke chapter 10. Uh, Luke chapter 10 starts, as you remember from the Bible reading, that Jesus appoints 72 to go out. Um, you might be familiar, if you know about the way the Gospels work, there was 12 disciples who were appointed by Jesus and they became the 12 apostles and the ones that get most of the attention because they had the privilege for three whole years of following Jesus around night and day and they saw what he did in publicly and they can question him in private. They had a, a sort of incredible opportunity and they became the sort of foundation stone uh, for the new movement Jesus was in uh, commencing. 
every now and again, and this example here, we get an insight there was a larger group of followers and they seem to come and go. So the 12 followed everywhere, this larger group seemed to come and go and I think they came and go, came and went depending where Jesus was located. So Jesus in a certain area and there'd be a group of people gather for a while and be with him but then he left and they would go back to the normal life. And so uh, we have the example here of the 72 who were sent out on a two by two mission by Jesus. It just simply says in verse 1, after this the Lord appointed 72 and I think the number is not anything special everyone loves numbers in the bible what does it mean you know what are we supposed to look at i think it's just a number okay so 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he's about to go so off they go (coughs) as he sends them off he does something about what he sent them off to and the first thing is which we're going to see he says i'm sending off into something i wanted to tell you you should see Okay, you're going to town by town, but I'm going to tell you there's something about what you're going to, you need to have an understanding of and to see clearly. So they go off, first point they're going to see. When they come back and they have a report back to Jesus about their experience having gone two by two to these towns, Jesus then has another view of what's been accomplished. And he sees something in what they've done, which again, they probably wouldn't have seen unless he said so. So there's two aspects here. There's two things going on. Jesus sees about where they're going to and what it's like. And when they return, he sees something about what's been achieved about where they've gone to. So what's the first thing he sees? Well, he sees a harvest. He sees a harvest. He told them, as they're going out two by two, in verse 2, He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into the harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. (coughs) Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. The image of a harvest field is one that Jesus actually uses a few times. Uh, He speaks about looking around. And in John 4, he says, look around. The fields are ripe for harvest. And uh, in a world where agriculture dominated, everyone readily understood. We don't have agriculture uh, motives so much nowadays, but they're not unfamiliar. So harvest time's coming in the agriculture environment, and the fields are ready. And now's the moment, you know, that's the whole point. Now's the big thing we're waiting for. No moment of opportunity that we reap We reap, we gather. The fields have now come and done what they're meant to do. Now's the gathering moment, the reaping moment, because the opportunity's now arrived. And that's why he says, pray, the Lord of harvest will send out further workers, because 72 is a good start, but hardly is going to cut through. So we need to pray to God to provide more workers to go out in the harvest field. Okay, what's the nature of this actual harvest that he's talking about? What is the nature of this as he sees the towns around where he is and he's making them understand? What's the nature of this harvest? Well, this whole area he sees is under judgment as he sees it. And a harvest is going to occur. He's going to harvest and reap people away from judgment into a place of blessing and peace. 
So these two by two disciples go out, area under judgment, people will be rescued from the judgment they're all under and to come into the kingdom of God, which will be a place of blessing and peace. Now, as they go out, <coughs> as he goes out, he's open with them. There's going to be apparent risks in where they're going. It's not going to be straightforward. Notice in verse 3 says, Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. He said, I'm going to send you out like lambs amongst green pastures, cool brooks of water. It'll be very nice. It'll be very pleasant. No, I'm sending you out into the harvest field like lambs among wolves. That should terrify anyone who understands what wolves are like and lambs are like. But then he says... Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals. So the point of that, there's going to be risks seemingly, uh, but you don't need to go with armoured tanks and sort of safety vests. You know? don't have to carry with a whole heap of sort of armaments and ready to sort of make sure you're protected. When you go into the harvest field, yes, there are risks involved, but guess who's going to be with you? God will provide. It'll be vulnerable... There'll be risks involved, but send you must, and as you go, God will look after you. That's all you need to provide. Do not take a personal bag. God will give you anything you need to get this. He will protect and provide. So the first thing he sees, of course, is the harvest field. The harvest field all around him. That's what he wants them to see, and that's what he speaks about. The second thing he sees, okay? So the 72 disciples go out in the harvest field, a message of blessing and peace uh, in the midst of judgment. The summary message is the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus established, they pronounce is coming near and he says as you go, some may accept, some may reject. If they accept, stay. If they reject, judgment stays upon them as it already is the case. Now, it seems that the little mini-mission went exceedingly well. And the 72 came back and they were very excited. You know, the language we use, they were pumped. <laughs> Look down at verse 17 when they come back. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to your name. How great it has been. Look how wonderful the whole activity has been. You sent us out and we saw incredible things. Delightful things, wonderful things. With authority of Jesus, not their own authority, mind you, they witnessed powerful testimony to the reality of the coming of the kingdom and people coming into the place of blessing and peace. Even the demons submit to your name. At this point, Jesus sees something different. So they saw incredible activity, but what does Jesus see in verse 18? He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What did he see? They saw people submitting to... But what did Jesus say I saw? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I've given you authority to trample on snakes. That's sort of picking up the language that we have sort of uh, ability to rule creation, that goes back to the very beginning. 
I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice your names written in heaven. But the significant thing he sees, remember, he sees the defeat of Satan. Until that point, they thought they were just engaged in activity in Jesus' name. And wonderful things uh, played out. But Jesus sees Satan falling. Now ultimately this anticipates the final fall of Satan. When Jesus dies on the cross where the enemy is totally defeated. But they're anticipating this even now. And so here we have 72 quite ordinary folk. They're not given names like the Big 12. These are just ordinary 72 They speak a message about Jesus and his kingdom and Jesus says, I've seen Satan fall. I've seen Satan defeated. And they've gone. Nothing will ultimately harm them. They're protected. So two very simple things Jesus sees. First thing he sees, look around. A harvest, an opportunity, he says. See it? Do you see what I see? He says to the 72. And they go off. And then when they return, what's the summary of what he's seen? I've seen Satan fall. I've seen Satan defeated. Through the activity of you, 72 ordinary folk, with no big things that to support you. And yet he's defeated. Putting another way, he says, I see a moment of opportunity for people to come into the kingdom And this opportunity will be involved, the great spiritual battle of our day, of the highest order, where Satan himself will be defeated. So that's what he sees. I want to ask for us today, do we see the same thing? Is that something we should see? Should we have the optometrist recalibration about how we look around this area and came to the same sorts of conclusions that Jesus wanted the 72 to come to. So think about this way. Is there still a harvest all around us? Is there a moment of opportunity that still presents to us who are here? Should we look out, lift our eyes and don't see a massive crowds of people and roads and buildings, or do we see a harvest of people? Is that possibly right? Just because Jesus said it's 72, does he say to 100 plus people at Oran Park Anglican Church today, would he say the same thing to us? Well, the message of the kingdom of God is one that's been given to his followers to speak. These first 72 went with a message, and we know that message was to continue in his followers' Till the very end of the age. And we know in another place in uh, Mark 13, he speaks of the fact, speaking of the Son of Man, that until the very end of the age, this gathering activity of the elect amongst the whole people of the world would continue. He said, I'll send, mes- I'll send his, my messengers and gather my elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, to the ends of the heavens. I'll gather. 
Jesus says, to the very end of the age, to the final ends of the earth. Now, when he spoke these words, Oren Park, I promise you, would have been the ends of the earth as far as he could see. He couldn't get much further away. But I'll push back. Can't we politely respond to Jesus and say, it hardly seems like a time of opportunity anymore. Oh, it's all well and good, Jesus. Back in your day, you were there, you looked around, time of opportunity. But it's hardly like our circumstances, is it? It's not a time of opportunity. Maybe it's a time of careful, quiet retreat. It's not, if I can be blunt, it's not as if the Christian message is seen to be particularly attractive at this time. Um, if you're honest, and I would say if you read the mater- a lot of med- media material, it would seem the whole Christian enterprise is part of, and I quote, an oppressive, outdated and deeply harmful moral system. Do you hear that? The Christian message that I hold as a great moment of peace and blessing is portrayed as belonging to something oppressive, outdated and deeply harmful. Well, that's a bit confronting, isn't it? And more than that, it's not as if people are what sort of rolling out the welcome mats and saying, glad you've come to talk. I'm glad you're here. We are convinced, as we gather here this morning, that this is a great message, an overwhelming message of peace, of blessing. In the midst of difficulties we're talking about this morning, there's still peace and blessing found here. But we have little confidence in reality that other people will respond. Now you see what I've done very carefully over the last few minutes. I've subtly taken the message of Jesus. Remember Jesus' message? Lift your eyes. Look up. Look out. Look at the staggering opportunity all around you. And I've now made it possible for us to look down. It's not really our time. It's not really a moment of opportunity. It's complicated and difficult. So, yes, I want to acknowledge there's a different feel to our time and there are different things required. And just because we've done it one way in the past doesn't mean we have to do it the same way in the future. I'll be honest, it's not straightforward and it will require this time courage and creativity great dependence upon the Lord but the message Jesus speaks is the same message he always speaks we should not lose confidence that this is still the time of opportunity it is still the time of opportunity it's always been the time of opportunity is an opportunity time for harvest there are people to be gathered into God's kingdom to know his peace and blessing and who Jesus is Now, this is what I had to say. I can come as an outsider and I can leave tomorrow. But it's a time of posture and stance. It's for Christians to be confident that there's a message here, there's a wonderful message that others are to have. I'm not telling you how to do it. That's Stuart's role. That's your role. I say, but the posture is, lift your eyes. 
Continue to look around you. Now is a time of opportunity. Be amazed what's all around. It's a harvest time for gathering into God's kingdom. Okay, well that's a harvest. What do we think about the fall of Satan? Remember you looked, lifted your eyes and said, well it's not just the great harvest, we're actually engaged in the great spiritual battle of our time. Engaged with Satan's defeat. Well there's two aspects of this I want you to think about at Oran Park or New Life. When it comes to running New Life, I know for a fact that a lot of energy is just giving the practicalities of this. People often say, well, how do you know you belong to this church? When you're on a roster, you know you're part of the church, you know? There's sort of like, there's a whole heap of things that practically have to be done week by week. You've got all these people just running things, doing things that are really important. And I say, we can't ever not do those, but don't lose sight that every aspect of the life of this church is involved in a spiritual battle. The day-to-day running seems so straightforward, that seems on a human level to be so obvious, and there's nothing about that I want to diminish, but don't forget that you're engaged in a spiritual battle all the time. First point. But the second is perhaps the, where Jesus lands, which is very important. It's where Jesus takes the 72 on their turn. And it's this. Don't let the ministry you're involved in define who you are. The 72 come back and said, wow, look what we're doing. How wonderful it is. How great it is. We've got things happening. Even the demons submit to us in your name. And he reminds them, whatever is happening engaged in this mission, they've got to make sure their heart stays right. And that's what he does in verse 20. Very important. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Get what's being said there? Whatever else might be involved in this very great mission as you go out into this harvest field and reap a great harvest... Let your heart be filled with this at the deepest level and the most profound level that ultimately what matters most is your very name is written in heaven itself. That is what you need to carry wherever you go. That your name is written in the Father's book of life and is indelibly marked never to be erased in the book of heaven and find your joy there. Find your joy there. It's so easy to find your joy in your ministry. So, if I can speak personally, if I was to lose my role as bishop, is my joy as a Christian then depleted? Oh, I'm not doing the role I was once doing. I'm not who I should be. Ultimately, it matters not. Ultimately, where my great hope lies is what? My name is in the book of life. One of the greatest preachers of the 20th century is a man called Martin Lloyd-Jones. You might not have heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones, but he defined, uh, is a great leader, uh, Welshman based in London. An illness forced him at the end of his life to retire 
from his preaching ministry and his worldwide travelling and his book writing and he sort of became confined to home and hardly could get out at all. And as the illness took hold, he could barely speak anymore, let alone preach as he once did everywhere. A friend visited him at the end of his, towards the end and basically had the temerity to ask, well, how are you coping? And he wasn't asking how you're coping with your illness. He was asking this, given all the fantastic things you've done over your life and all the places you've been, what's it feel like now to be confined to your little home where you can't do anything? You know what he did? Had his Bible open, he couldn't speak anymore. He turned to Luke chapter 10 and pointed to this very verse. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice your names written in heaven. My life, he's saying, was not defined by the fact that I could do this preaching all around the world. I had all these wonderful things happen. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Isn't that a great story? It's a great story. So what do you see here at New Life Anglican as you look around all where we're involved in? Well, we see opportunity and a spiritual activity which would be engaged with. Jesus prayed a prayer of thanksgiving to his Father, a bit like he did in John 17, that other folk would have the same mind as these folk. Verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you are pleased to do. Did you hear what he just said to us? I don't know if you think you are the big people of life. You're the not, are we reported as if what we're doing is vital and important? Well, he's revealed to us something staggering. What's he saying? I've revealed this to people like this. If I can put it bluntly, the nobodies of the world. The nobodies of the world are the ones who have an understanding of the dimension that is involved here all around. But then he turns to his disciples. He says in verse 23 and 24, Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. And who do you think he's talking about there? So remember the 72 come back and they've seen? Blessed are the eyes that see what you see? And the question I've got to have, do you see what the disciples see? Have you been able to see this world, this place, this time with the same clarity that the automatrist Jesus is given? Please continue to lift your eyes and see what's before us. Please have the courage to continue to be involved and engaged and pray that God will provide and equip us for the great spiritual battle of our time, confident that ultimately what matters most has already been dealt with. What is that? Your name is written in heaven itself and never, ever to be removed. Heavenly Father, think of your words. Strengthen us to love and serve the Lord Jesus in his mission this day. In his name we pray. Amen.